basically make a start by saying that there has been a slight change in the uh, program for this week's meeting of the um, East and East Central European Seminar. We were hoping, with the generous help of André, to bring over uh, Mikhail Lierlyshev to talk about Russia's national Zonderweg, Chadayev's case, but um, I have difficulties with the visa, I understand, which is very unfortunate. What is a fortunate side effect of it is that we have Andre Zorin, who has very kindly agreed to give a talk. I don't need to introduce um, Andre Zorin, and he's of course um, our professor of Russian, who has researched and published extremely widely on um, all aspects of Russian literature, culture, history, from especially the late or from the 18th, late 18th century onwards up to post-Soviet Russia. So, um, thank you very much, uh, Andrei, for uh, contributing. Thank you guys, so much. And, yeah, I tried as well as I could to bring together my ideas on the topic because Mikhail Vilyshev happened to be the early loser of the Olympic Games and uh, the gem in the British Embassy. So I had to, uh, I'll, of course, when you speak about the Russians on their leg, you can't avoid Chardayev, so I'll speak a little bit about him as well, yeah, but not in that length as was initially planned. So if you listen to current political debate in Russia, and if you try to follow it, the catchword is modernization. Everyone talks about modernization, and there are huge debates whether economical and technological modernization is possible without political and institutional modernization, how different parts of modernization relate to each other, and so on. There are people arguing uh, against uh, each other. There are even some skeptics who dare to say that it is too late and Russia is totally unable to modernize and it's hopeless. But everyone agrees there is total consensus across the board that modernization is something that Russia badly needs, that it is desirable even if not possible for someone. And the, the idea of modernization is brought by the challenges which the outside world and the development of the world puts before Russia. However, I think that the ideological metaphorics of the modernization project basically is not only traditional for Russia, but probably deeply archaic. And that would be the topic of my presentation. And I'll start to try to define some origins of the idea of uh, the metaphor of the transformational leap, which I believe is the most important part of Russian vision of its own specific part, its own Zonderweg. And then I'll discuss more or less at length the formation of this metaphor and will finish with its repercussions in the culture afterwards. The central, the focal point of my discussion would be 1830s and 1840s when uh, this concept was formed. And so I'll start with a reference to works of uh, famous Russian medievalist Viktor Zhivov, who discussed the differences between East Christian Russian Orthodox and West Christian understanding of sin. 
and uh, this uh, dogmatic difference between the two parts of two branches of Christianity is important because the differences in soteriology in the science of salvation defines uh, the everyday practices of the believer. And while Catholics used to count and to weight the sins committed by the specific person and wanted to redeem them by repentance, prayer and good deeds and so on, in the Orthodox tradition this sort of accounting of good and bad things you committed was always uh, understood as totally senseless because before the providence all hopes uh, to deserve salvation by your own forces are at best could be regarded as naive self-reliance and at worst the mortal sin of pride. You can only hope for the limitless bliss of God and of holy saints. Uh, thus, as it was many times noted in the East Orthodox vision of the world, doesn't have a purgatory where you can purge from your non-mortal sins and save there, uh, thereafter, and so there is no intermediate way between utter salvation and utter damnation. Thus, an Orthodox believer Hoped, he put his hopes for the other life, not for on his actual behavior in this world, but on one act of final repentance, most likely to happen before his death. In early 18th century, the modernizing, the first Russian modernizing project of Peter the Great, gave uh, to this notion of mystical transformation. Uh, secular and state dimension. It was supposed that the transformation should happen not to the specific sinner, but to the whole empire, to the whole country, and this transformation should happen not in the other world, but in this one, in this world, in historical time. However, the cultural mechanism of this total transformation stand moral, was more or less traditional. In the speech uh, on uh, the funeral speech uh, to Peter the Great. Uh, it's in the handout, the quotation. His closest advisor and his pen through the last half uh, of his life, Fyafan Prokopovich, defined Peter the Great as the reason, or Vinovnik, of countless our blessings and joys who resurrected Russia as if from the dead and built it into such power and glory. The resurrection from the dead becomes the absolutely adequate metaphor reflecting the spirit of Petroian reforms during which his subjects were, as his other close associate counselor, Chancellor Golovkin put it, put into non-being, transformed into, from non-being into being. This sort of the creation ex nihilo which was very important for Petrine reforms, is known to every Russian reader from the introductory uh, chapter of the Pushkin's Bronze Horseman. Uh, the essence of Petrine reforms is well known. I'll briefly discuss just two parts, two main issues. One was a concentration of effort 
in a specific one place. Peter chose his capital, Petersburg, to be the place of transformation, and in total disregard of the horrible climate of the new capital, he was calling it Paradise, and it was the official name of the city, the Paradise. Prokopovich was praising Peter that he found Russia as a wooden one and made out of it a golden one. However, Petrine decrees actually prohibited stone building outside of St. Petersburg, making the whole country even more wooden. But in the mystical reality, the only which uh, the Tsar reformer tried to create, the only important vision and image was this new specific capital. And in the same way, he created the people who should have inhabited this paradise. Uh, social elite, the nobles and the clerks, were, they, were, they were made to change their dress, they were shaved, and under the threat of horrible punishment, uh, they had to acquire everyday European habits. Needless to say that more than 90% of the population looked exactly as before and continued with their traditional lifestyle, but it was on their background as the Europeanized nobility ready to enter in this new transformed world acquired the specific visibility. Uh, and speaking about Zunderweg, one can be surprised what is so specific about Zunderweg. In some way, it goes without saying that every country and every, uh, everyone has its own Zunderweg. What should be strange about it? Uh, but uh, the whole idea of your own specific way is not so much about yourself as about the others. To define your way as special, you have to assume that others have the same way. And thus, on the background of this normal, standard way of everyone else, your own way becomes a specifically zonder. And for Russia, this mirror image was always the West, until the 20th century, mostly seen in the image of the France and the French, and in the 20th century more in the image of US and Americans, especially in the last decades. And so, since early 18th century, Russia's position vis-à-vis -vis the West was a worrying question for its elite. Though the initial perception of this problem was relatively benign, it was generally assumed that Russia is backwards compared with its Western counterparts, but being a young country, it had time on its side and was rapidly closing the gap. Slavish, slavish imitations of Western ways were generally mocked and condemned, but the necessity to take lessons from the more advanced countries remained unchallenged in Russia at least until the time of French Revolution, and with the exception of rabid patriotism of Shishkov and his followers beyond that. Only after the Napoleonic Wars and the Decemberist Revolt of 1825, when, using the expression coined by Nicholas Rezanovsky, the ways of Russian state and Russian society started to part, this optimistic and more or less universal outlook gave way to a set of a different and conflicting ideologies. And unsurprisingly, like everywhere else, like in all, I think, other countries where Zondervek theories became popular, in Russia uh, it appeared as such as an 
fully formed ideology within the framework of romantic nationalism, which originated in late, as it is well known, 18th century Germany as the ideology of national reunification, first formulated on a cultural level and then transferred into the political sphere. The concept of the nation as a collective person, brought forward by Herder, emphasized the role of folklore, language and literature as the expression of national soul and the unifying force that, in spite of the political fragmentation of Germany, could first and foremost serve as a proof of existence of German nation. This ideology institutionalized the role of national poet as the embodiment of national spirit. In Germany, Goethe gradually became such a universally recognized institution, notwithstanding the fact that he himself always refused to embrace nationalist aspirations and sprachpatriotismus. The perception of the nation as an organic unity was specifically geared to confront French cultural hegemony that was implicit in the culture of enlightenment. Needless to say, political and cultural situation in Russia could not be more different. Unlike fragmented Germany, it was a centralized multi-ethnic empire which during the first decades of the 19th century achieved an unprecedented political stature and military power. However, many political, social, and cultural factors made Russia and its intellectuals especially receptive to the new and fashionable ideology that appeared in Germany and was rapidly sweeping all over Europe. One of the most powerful mechanisms for the perpetuation of this discourse can be found in Russian literature. After Alexander Herzen, it became commonplace to argue that in the country, lacking any form of political representation independent court of free press, Literature and literary criticism became the main forum for public debates and the focus of national hopes and aspirations. To add to this, in the country where all political, religious and ideological continuities were regularly broken, literature remained the only national institution that retained its status and with a partial exception early 1920s was always regarded with reverence and esteem. For nearly two centuries, the great tradition of Russian literature was inscribed in the minds of generations of Russians through school curriculum. This tradition emerged in the 1830s simultaneously with the birth of Romantic nationalism in Russia and within a framework of Romantic glorification of literature as an embodiment of national spirit and the main vehicle of national self-expression and self-preservation. While Romantic nationalism brought the literary canon to the center of national culture, this canon perpetuated the message and the appeal of nationalism for decades to come. So now I come uh, to Chardaev, and it is widely known, uh, sort of a commonplace, that the debate about Russia's historical fate was generated by the publication of the so-called first philosophical letter, Первое философическое письмо, by Petr Chardaev in, uh, in 1836. The scholars still argue how this extravagant and self-contradictory document, originally written in French, could have skipped through the rigid censorship of Tsarist Russia. Chardoyev blamed all evils. Uh, Dr. Verzhev has a very interesting theory how it could, could have happened. Chardoyev blamed all evils of Russian history upon the fatal choice of religion. According to him, Eastern Christianity separated Russia both from the West and the Islamic East and left it in the civilization void. Quotation 2. Uh, we are not a part of any of the great families. We are neither of the West nor of the East 
and we have not the traditions of either. We stand, as it were, outside of time. The universal education of mankind has not touched us. Chardoff insisted that Russia as a nation and a state had no history whatsoever, and even more outrageously, he claimed that Western Europe, even after Reformation and French Revolution, in his letter he never mentioned either of those historic events, showed an example of spiritual unity based on Catholicism. However, the public, as well as the authorities, took his rather weird arguments very seriously, as he was the first person to openly challenge the doctrine of orthodoxy, autocracy, nationality, which was forged by the Minister of Education, Sergei Uvarov, and by that time was established as an official ideology of Russian Empire. It defined Russian nationhood as believing the dogmas of the ruling church and the existing political order, the institutions that according to the ideologies of orthodoxy, autocracy, nationality, saved Russia from the degradation already experienced by the West. The magazine that published Chardai's letter was closed, its editor exiled, and Chardai was officially declared insane and forever banned from publishing. Nevertheless, the publication triggered the outburst of national self-examination. The responses to the letter helped to define the main trends that dominate Russian political thought until the present day, the so-called westernizers and Slavophiles. The former, as it is known, regarded Peter's reform as an unfinished project and believed that the assimilation of Western manners and cultures, cultural norms, was to be followed by the adoption of Western political institutions, most importantly, parliamentary democracy, equality before the law, legal system and free press. Only then, Russia would be able to finally compete with her European neighbors, not only militarily, but also economically, politically, and culturally. On the contrary, Slavophiles believed in Russia's underweg, based on its prepetrine historical legacy, unique spirituality, and communal religiosity. According to Slavophiles, Russia had to reject misplaced westernization and return to its real peasant and orthodox roots. Thus, the real spectrum of ideological positions towards Russia's mission and its relation with the West can be systematized on the basis on the answers the adherents of each ideology gave to two basic questions I put it on the table on number three. First, whether Russia is comparable with the West, can you compare it at all, or it just has its own unique way of development? And the secondly, whether Russia's traditions and customs are superior to Western ones or inferior to them. So the proponents of official ideology believed that Russia is basically comparable to the West, but better. The Slavophiles believed that it is much better and incomparable to the West. You can't compare because ways are completely different. Westernizers thought that Russia is behind and should be compared, and Chardayev believed that it is totally incomparable and much worse. Naturally, the regime of the public debate was at best asymmetrical. The proponents of official ideology not only had at their disposal all the channels of dissemination of their ideas, but could control the expression of contradictory views through censorship and outright police repression. On the contrary, their opponents had to rely on oral discussions in closed salons and circles, manuscripts and hints and equivocations in published texts. The main role here inevitably once again belonged to literature and its interpretations. When you speak about the basic 
national ideological met metaphors, it is always an exaggeration to claim that there is one person or one text where it appeared. However, in this case, I think that we can actually point to such a text and to the date when it came to its existence, and unsurprisingly, it is uh, Gogol's Dead Souls, published in 1842. Literary critics who served as pivotal figures in the first open polemics about Russia's mission as a nation was centered, which was centered on the interpretation of work of fiction, uh, namely the Dead Souls. In his book, Gogol aspired to solve the westernizer's Slavophiles debate. Unsurprisingly, both groups claimed him as the supporter of their position and argued whether the novel should be read as the apotheosis or the scathing condemnation of Russia. Like most great works of art, Dead Cells allowed contradictory readings, especially as Gogol gave birth to an original and peculiar version of Russian exceptionalism that has not lost its appeal till the present day and for more than a century and a half remains popular across ideological borders. Gogol portrayed Russia as a deeply flawed country, but he was also convinced that this nation of dead cells is entitled to some sort of mystical regeneration, not in spite of its misery and hopeful sinfulness, as it was assumed before him, but exactly because of it. The religious origins of this idea are self-evident. Jesus in Gospels many times repeated that the last will be the first and will become the first. Still, Gogol seems to be one of the first authors and thinkers who read this teaching within the framework of Romantic nationalism and applied them not to individual salvation but to the nation as an organic whole. In the end of the first part of the Dead Souls, the Troika, three, three horses that draw the carriage in which the swindler Chichikov and his drunken coach escape from the town, is transformed into the image of the nation that gloriously surpasses all others. Um, I have to apologize before the Russians because the following quotation is the most quoted in the whole history of Russian literature, the famous Ptitsa Troika, but I'll still uh, say it is Quotation 4. It is not thus like the bold Troika which cannot be overtaken that thou art dashing along, O Russia, my country. The roads smoke beneath thee, the bridges thunder. All is left, all will be left behind thee. The spectator stops short, astonished as, a, at, a, as at a marvel of God. Is this the lightning which has descended from heaven? Yes. On the Troika flies, inspired by God, O Russia, whither art thou dashing? Reply. But she replies not. The horse's bells break into a wondrous sound, the shattered air becomes a tempest, and the thunder grows. Russia flies past everything else upon earth, and other peoples, kingdoms, and empires gaze askance as they stand aside to make way for her. The first part of Dead Souls was to be followed by the two others, that had to show the very process of this visionary transformation of Russia into the ideal community and its inhabitants into the harmonious society. The dead souls of the first part were to experience the moral rebirth. Gogol wrote the second part of the dead souls twice, and both times he burned the manuscript, 
because of his own dissatisfaction and mixed responses of the first listeners. After his second failure, he stopped taking food and died without ever having started his work on part three. Russian scholars have long ago showed that the general plan of the novel, or of the poem, as Gogol himself preferred to call it, was modeled on Dante's Divine Comedy. The published part one corresponded to Inferno, the burned part two was to play the role of the purgatory, and the imagined part three of the paradise. The parallels between the plans of these two chefs of European literature are clear and consistent. Still, the difference between them is no less striking. Dante sent his poetical alter ego to travel through transcendental spheres from hell to heaven. However, unlike Gogol, he never envisaged the immediate transformation of hell into paradise. Gogol's trilogy was left unfinished, and in any case, the general plan of his poem was probably too bold to be grasped by contemporary critics whose approach was influenced by party feuds and prejudices. Still, Gogol was not alone in his vision of Russia's past, present, and future. Interestingly enough, Chardaev himself was thinking upon similar lines. In 1837, a year after the fatal publication of the first letter, he wrote The Apology of a Madman, where he completely restated his position. We'll never know the exact motives that were behind this change of direction. Chardaev may have been willing to rehabilitate himself in the eyes of the authorities. He may have sincerely modified his worldview, or indeed regarded his new position as the logical outcome of the old one. We know only that the apology didn't lead to any improvement in his situation, it remained unpublished, and the ban on the name of the author was not lifted. In any case, Chardaev and the apology chose not to renounce his earlier anti-Russian diatribe. Instead, he argued that his further deliberations on the same topic inevitably led him to the conclusions that Russia was the most glorious, has the most glorious future one can imagine. Uh, quotation follows. Since we have come after others, it is our duty to be better than others. I have the intimate conviction that we are called upon to resolve most of the problems of the social order, to realize most of the ideas of the older societies, to pronounce on most of the grave questions that preoccupy mankind. It's worth noting that in the end of the Apology of a Madman, Chardaev has actually denounced Gogol by contrasting the condemnation of his letter with the success of the government inspector, Gogol's comedy, where the author has showed his country in an equally unsparing manner. One may feel that Chardaev saw in Gogol his main rival in the discussion of the historical fate and visionary mission of Russia. Thus, in late 30s, 1830s, early 1840s, Chardaev and Gogol, independently of each other, originated the logical, or rather supralogical pattern, according to which Russia's main advantages lay in its backwardness, and envisaged for their country the dramatic transformational leap that will one day enable it to lead the concert of nations. These ideas had many followers among writers and thinkers who were otherwise completely different from each other. Most of them were expecting this transformation to happen rather sooner than later, and aspired to become not only the prophets, but also the witnesses of such a miraculous change. In 1854, 
During the Crimean War that was exceptionally unfortunate to Russia, leading Slavophile thinker and poet Alexei Khamekov wrote the passionate condemnation of his country that at the first glance doesn't seem to bode well with his nationalistic credentials. Quotation 6. In courts black by black untruth, marked by the yoke of slavery, full of godless flattery, rotten lie, and deadly and shameful laziness, and all sorts of filth. However, this outburst of indignation ended with seemingly unexpected but entirely predictable exclamation, oh, unworthy of an election, you are elected. Chemekov's opponents from the other side of the political spectrum were less keen on biblical allusions, but fully ready to embrace the same logic. The militant Westernizer Nikolai Chernyshevsky believed that the revolutionary spirit of Russian peasants will bring imminent liberation and ended his famous novel What is to be done by the description of the ideal harmony brought by the victorious revolution that was to happen within two years from the time when he was writing his novel in the prison cell. Another radical, Alexander Herzen, paradoxically glorified by Soisaya Berlin as one of the greatest European liberals, became deeply disappointed by the bourgeois West and cherished the idea that the traditions of the peasant commune make Russia the ideal place for the future socialist society. In late 19th, early 20th century, this way of thinking defined the teaching of, of the so-called populist, populists, but such an avowed opponent of populists as Lenin also insisted that socialist revolution will triumph not in the most developed capitalist countries, but in the least developed one. As a dogmatic Marxist, Lenin couldn't fail to see that this idea contradicts the spirit and the letter of economic determinisms he claimed to profess, but the magic of the transformational leap was more attractive for him than the logic of orthodox Marxism. The views of ideological opponents about the nature and character of the transformation that Russia had to undergo could be completely different. But most of them agreed that such a transformation was both possible and desirable and were fascinated by its sheer dimension and magnitude. If Gogol believed that Russian bird Troika would carry Chichikov from hell to paradise but failed to find artistic means to describe this journey in details, Dostoevsky made the description of the movement of human soul between absolute good and absolute evil his trademark. The character of his lost novel, Brothers Karamazov, confesses, yes, man is broad, quotation seven. Too broad, I'd have him narrow. God and the devil are fighting there, and the battlefield is the heart of man. Dmitry Karamazov speaks here about man in general. But most often, one can easily find thousands of examples in Russian Google. His words are quoted wrongly as Russian man is broad. Dostoevsky's analysis of human nature was reinterpreted as the analysis of the Russian soul. However, this interpretation doesn't seem to be completely contradictory to the uh, intentions of the author who regarded Russian soul as the ideal embodiment of human nature. Dostoevsky insisted that Russian man was broad enough to understand and include in his world all other national psyches. This idea was fully expressed in the last essay by Dostoevsky that may be regarded as his testament, the famous Pushkin speech, 
He made it the celebrations of the inauguration of the monument to Pushkin in Moscow in June 1880, half a year before his death. By that time, Pushkin's status as a national poet was already established, and according to the traditions of Romantic nationalism, Dostoevsky had to deduct the conclusions about the mission of the nation from the works of its greatest author. Presenting the single most cosmopolitan Russian poet as the symbol of Russian individuality was a challenging task. But Dostoevsky found an elegant and powerful solution. He saw Pushkin's, and therefore Russian, uniqueness in their exceptional ability to understand other nations better than those nations are able to understand themselves. Quotation 8. In Europe, uh, in Europe there, there had been in the literatures of Europe men of colossal artistic genius, a Shakespeare, a Cervantes, a Schiller. But show me one of these great geniuses who possessed such a capacity for universal sympathy as our Pushkin. This capacity, the preeminent capacity of our nation, he shares with, uh, with the whole nation, and by that above, he is our national poet. The greatest of European poets could never so powerfully embody in themselves the genius of a foreign, even a neighboring people, its spirit and all its hidden death and all its yearning after its appointed end as Pushkin could. This analysis had a clear political dimension as well. The nation that can understand every other nation is a natural leader of an international order. The glorification of Pushkin's universal genius becomes the thinly veiled legitimization of Russia's imperialist goals. Uh, Our destiny is universality, won not by the sword, but by the strength of brotherhood and our fraternal aspiration to reunite mankind. What is the power of the spirit of Russian nationality if not its aspiration after the final goal of universality and omnihumanity? Dostoevsky was aware that Russia is poor and backward, and he didn't anticipate it becoming prosperous and developed in the foreseeable future. Instead, he chose to quote another great Russian poet and militant imperialist Fyodor Kutchev. This poor land, Christ traversed, quotation 10, with blessing in the garb of a serf. Why then should we not contain his final word, concluded Dostoevsky? The last once more were to become the first. This uh, idea, this vision of the transformational leap as envisaged by the romantic nationalists was different as I've tried to uh, prove from the earlier one by in one extremely important point. Peter the Great, starting their transformational leap, wanted completely to annihilate the symbolic history of the Moscow Tsardom and start the history of the country as tabula rasa. Uh, the reform of the calendar, the numerical first in the official title of the emperor, uh, the new way of inheritance of the throne pointed exactly to this. However, since Gogol and Chardayev, the period that was preceding the transformation was regarded not just one that was non-existent. It was not just a creation as, as Nikola, but unprecedentedly negative and catastrophical and pregnant with an imminent and unavoidable perish. Thus, the mystical transformation became even more monumental and more impressive. Already in the early 19th century, the main myth of the foundation myth of Russian history shifts from the Petrine reforms to the time of troubles 
the Polish capture of Moscow, uh, the um, victory over the Poles by the militia of Minin and Pozharsky, and the start of the Romanov dynasty. The catastrophe of the time of troubles and the collapse of the Russian statehood changes according to these ideological models by the establishment of the dynasty chosen by God and in the long-term historical perspective by the blossoming of Russia which conquered the Poland earlier triumphant over it. By 1830s, the majority of educational Russians established a clear parallel between the early 17th century and the capture of Moscow by the Poles and the uh, events of early 19th century when Russia was captured by Napoleonic armies. In its turn, uh, both times Russia emerged glorious after this catastrophe. In its turn, the military campaign of 1812-1814, the image of which was uh, created in the public consciousness by the great novel of Tolstoy, became the mythological precursor of even greater victory of 1945. Uh, the official titles of both wars as Patriotic War and Great Patriotic War symbolically united them in the single narrative, and the parallel with the carefully planned uh, retreat of 1812 gave to the catastrophic defeats of 19. 41, a sort of legitimacy. But uh, the main narrative structure became the same both times. The greatest victory came out of the catastrophe which put the country on the brink of the total collapse. The monumental transformation of the country which was completely occupied and defeated had its parallel also in the Great Revolution, which was meant to change the backward agrarian country in the communist state of the future. The ideology of the Bolshevik breakthrough with the slogans of doing a five-year plan in four years, putting uh, on the empty shades the city garden, the uh, paradise city, and uh, the promises that were given twice in a century to uh, achieve the communist ideal in the lifespan of the existing generation, uh, well, all of this is well known and thoroughly studied. It is interesting to see how the format of the promised paradise was shrinking from time to time. Initially, the breakthrough was uh, this, uh, meant to be the start of the transformation of the whole world. Then came the idea of the building on the socialism in one separately taken country. And finally, it was, it was started to be built within the administrative borders of the Moscow Circle Road and within the closed uh, cities of the Soviet Union. Uh, the famous slogan of the Brezhnev epoch, of the epoch of stability, that Moscow should be transformed in the ideal communist city, was the sort of anecdotal expression of this tendency. To this paradise also should be, as the Petrine one, should have been inhabited by a new man, worthy of living in this ideal future. Uh, the, uh, the formula of new man was one of the basic of the communist mythology, and this new man was exactly the man of the new nomenclatura, which was to live in the elite regions of the cities, and the scientific and technical intelligentsia that inhabited the 
closed cities working for the defense and for the creation of the atomic bomb. It was the horrible confrontation between these two elites that finally broke down the Soviet system. The final Russian Revolution, the last one at least, or maybe the latest one, uh, yeah, maybe we'll see more of them, but the latest one, actually was thought by its ideologists as completely as something as a complete opposition to the previous one, with its millenarian and utopian fantasies. The main slogans of the anti-communist revolution of uh, late 80s, early 90s were turning Russia into a normal country and adherence to the whole civilized world. It seems that these slogans were in, are completely contradict everything that I've said previously. However, the model of the transformatory, transformational leap or breakthrough from the dark past into the glorious future was still important. I'll give just one example, uh, and I want you to listen to 60 seconds of Russian texts taken from the speech, the final speech of President Yeltsin when he resigned from the office. Я просто многие наши с вами мечты не сбылись. За то, что нам казалось просто, оказалось мучительно тяжело. Я прошу прощения за то, что не оправдал некоторых надежд тех людей, которые верили, что мы одним махом одним рывком, одним знаком можем перепрыгнуть первого застойного, солидарного, прошлого, светлое, богатое, цивилизованное будущее. Я сам в это верил, сказал, что суть Однотуру и все равее. Одним рывком я получил. Он-то я сражался слишком наивный. So yeah, I'll read the English translation, which is the last quote in the handout. I want to beg your pardon that I failed to make true the hopes of those who believed that we can, by one effort, by one push, by one sign, leap from the grey, stagnant, totalitarian past into clear, prosperous, civilized future. I believed it myself. It seemed that in one leap we would overcome everything. We didn't manage to do it in one leap. In some questions, I turned out to be too naive. Of course, Yeltsin, a political leader who won actually all the battles he fought, who managed to overcome all his opponents and to lead the country through incredible turmoil and to give it, to pass it to the chosen successor, can least of all be suspected of naivete. But one shouldn't probably suspect him of insincerity either. The power of the basic cultural metaphors was too strong that allowed that uh, to hope that it is possible 
to arrange such a transformation by one leap, one effort, and one sign. Especially this one sign is also a very important, interesting word, because they were pronounced only in the first 12-hour clock translation, which we heard. Jump by one leap is clear, yes? By one effort is also clear. What it means, jump in, from past into future, by one sign is less clear, probably because of this, this word was cut off from the later translation. This was only in one uh, audition of Yeltsin's translation. Probably Yeltsin just uh, said the wrong word and meant something else. But still, I think that this, uh, this is highly interesting. Uh, this jump from the totalitarian past into the civilized future is defined by the symbolic act of the change of the ideological orientation by side. So uh, this influence of the ideology of transformational leap is also present, and I'm finishing, in today's discussion about modernization. One can point to the, uh, and it was pointed several times, to the similarity of the plans of the uh, mirac miraculous uh, city of Skolkova with its specific, uh, with its own police, own laws, and uh, also the planned new technological clusters with the closed Soviet cities. It is well known. And even more important is the immediate recognizability of the narrative structure of the comparative modernization project. It uh, is born by this feeling of the imminent danger the uh, perception of the catastrophe which is, which is coming and which is nearly impossible to avoid. The only hope in the situation of imminent catastrophe is usual, is the concentration of the, all the forces of the country and the nation on the specific place where you can forge a new elite of the contemporary modernized Western type. And this elite is going to be able to bring the country into the glorious future. Will this idea work this time is yet to be seen. Thank you very much.